uh, the title that I put for this text, and we're looking at Ephesians 4, picking up where we left off last time with verse 31. We're actually on 32. Then there's an unfortunate chapter break, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. When Paul wrote this, he didn't write it with verses and chapters. It was just an on, one ongoing uh, letter, like you'd write a personal letter. You don't break it up into verses and chapters. That was done hundreds of years later for our convenience to find verses and track with them. So anyway, uh, he continues on, talking to Christians, verses 32 up to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 is what we want to look at this morning. Uh, but before we do, this is the part of the book of Ephesians where I said that the Apostle Paul is giving us many commands or imperatives that he's expecting us to comply with and do. And actually, they are commands from God himself. And I need to say up front, just by way of reminder, if you haven't been with us in Ephesians, is if you are not a Christian and you don't know Jesus Christ personally and you have not submitted your entire life to Him, confessed your sins to Him, and asked Him to come into your life as your personal Lord and Savior to forgive you, to transform you, to uh, make you born again and to be adopted into His spiritual family, totally dependent on everything He has done, nothing on what you have done, then you cannot possibly fulfill the commands that you're going to hear today. You can't do it. It's impossible. Paul is giving commands from God to Christians. It's clear. Only Christians can comply and really do these things from the heart. Because when you become a Christian, God has even given you the ability to fulfill these commands. And if you're not a Christian, you don't have the supernatural capacity or ability to obey God. So I need to say that up front, because if you're not a Christian and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, and you read these commands and you start trying to follow them and obey them and implement them, you'll probably, number one, be very frustrated. Number two, you also might have the wrong mindset, thinking that you can just do a whole bunch of things to make God happy and get forgiveness of sin and maybe earn your way into heaven. It doesn't work like that. You cannot do that. The Bible is clear. You cannot work yourself into heaven. Only the death of Jesus Christ takes care of your sin. That's it. It's His work, not ours. Okay? So we need to know that up front because the rest of this book, I keep saying in Ephesians, is command after command after command. And Paul's understanding is that you are a Christian. You know Jesus Christ personally. You have a spirit living in you. And as a result, you have inherent or innate ability to fulfill these commands. So let's go ahead and look at these. And I, t- I title these verses, Follow the Leader, with an exclamation point. Follow the Leader. And the leader here uh, is God the Father and Jesus. And Paul is calling all Christians to mimic, follow, imitate God the Father and Christ in specific areas of our life. So let's go ahead and look at those. Following along in Ephesians 4.32, Paul continues and says, And be kind, by the way, this is a contrast, because the last thing he talked about was he said these things we shouldn't do. Christian, don't be bitter, don't be wicked and vicious with your mouth, don't talk unkindly to people, don't talk angrily to people, don't talk resentfully to people, don't talk sarcastically to people. But in contrast, so that's the contrast now. He's saying, instead of being mean and unkind, do this, verse 32. And be kind to one another, Christians, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, Christian. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. He's talking about Christians an offering, and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So all Paul's saying is, you know what, Christian? Follow the leader. Do what God does. Do what Jesus does. And two specific areas, generally speaking, that he wants us to follow God and follow Christ, I put there on your handout. What does God want us to do? Well, number one, he wants Christians to imitate the Father and be kind to each other. That's it. Very simple, isn't it? 
Imitate God and be kind to each other. Second point he wants us to know is imitate Christ and love each other. Those are the two main points this morning. Sounds very simple, doesn't it? But you know what? Living those out is a challenge. It's very difficult. It's hard. I know it is for me as a sinner. It's a battle. So how can we be kind to each other as Christians and love one another as Christians? Well, let's go ahead and look at that. Uh, Three points there. On the first one, imitate the Father and be kind to each other. Specifically, three ways. Be kind to each other, letter A, in action. Let's be kind in our actions. That's the first one. And then B is let's be kind in our attitudes. That's from the heart. And then letter C, be kind in appreciation. That's what Paul talks about. Action, attitude, appreciation. They all go together. They all flow from one another. So let's look at the first one. Imitate God the Father and be kind to each other in our actions. Because he says right there, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another, Christian. Again, this is a contrast to what he just said. All this bitter, vicious, uh, talking, vitriolic, cutting each other down. uh, That has no place in the Christian life. It has no place in the Christian home. Has no place in the Christian church. Does it exist? Yeah, it creeps up its ugly head. We've got to resist it, confront it, confess it, grow, and move on. So last time it was all the negative things. Don't do these things. Now he's giving us positive things. Let's do these things. And Paul's very helpful that way. He doesn't just say, don't do that. He says, don't do that, and instead do that. Don't do that bad behavior, but replace it with this good behavior. And we need to take that model into consideration for our parenting. We don't just shake our finger in our kids all the time and say, don't do this, don't do that, knock it off, stop it, and then cut it there. That's insufficient and negligent parenting. Because then you're just a legalist. You say, don't do this, explain why and it's sinful, and then you tell them the right way to do it. Better yet, you model the right way to do it, right? Otherwise, you are a hypocrite if you can't model it for your own kids. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, don't do this because it's sinful, but rather replace the sinful habits of behavior with positive, godly, Christ-like actions. So that's what he's telling us in the first has to do with our actions. And the first action we need to replace bitterness and all these bad things with is to be kind to one another. Well, you know, this verb here literally, well, first of all, it's a command. It's called an imperative, which means that we are obligated as Christians to do this. This is not an option. This is just as uh, important and weighty and heighty as the Ten Commandments. Everybody makes a big deal about the Ten Commandments. We've got to obey those. Did you know there are hundreds of commandments in the New Testament? Not just ten? Wow. And they are just as important and vital as the Ten Commandments because they came from God Himself. Do you know the hundreds of commandments? From memory, there are. There, well, here's one of them. One of the commands is to be kind. Be kind to one another. So it is a command. The word kind is a very specific word here used in the New Testament. Uh, this word is used in the list of spiritual fruits in Galatians 5. You know, the spiritual fruits listed there uh, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. Right? So there's nine of them. Kindness is one of those. And in Galatians 5, Paul is saying, Uh, Those are attributes and attitudes that need to be characteristic of our life as Christians. And the only way we can do that, to have and show love, joy, peace, kindness, is a result of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And Paul is assuming that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, who took up residence inside of you the moment you became a Christian. And from that point on, the Holy Spirit can produce these good, godly fruits in you. And kindness is one of them. 
Well, that's just to say, if you're not a Christian, you can't truly be kind. You cannot be kind in the fullest sense of the term that Paul's talking about here, because this is a byproduct and a fruit of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a Christian. Only a Christian has the capacity to do this. And even as Christians, we're not going to do it perfectly all the time, because we battle against sin in our heart. But we at least have the capacity to do it. Be kind, Christian. So it's a command. It's a specific byproduct of the Holy Spirit in your life, Christian. And even this word, kindness, is very specific because it's used only a few times in the New Testament. And listen to how it's used, the nuances to it. It is used specifically in reference to being kind to your enemies on a human level. It's also used with respect to God's kindness to us as sinners, His enemies. That's a pretty consistent use of that word. So it's saying, be kind even to your enemies. The implication is it's taking us back to 31, verse 31 of Ephesians 4. You know that person that you were angry at and wanted to say mean things to? Don't. Rather, be kind to that person you're mad at. Be kind to your enemy, just like God was kind to you, sinner. That's what it's saying. So it's a very specific word regarding kindness. It's also used with respect to sweet wine or something that is sweet tasting, something that is very pleasing as opposed to caustic and bitter. And that word for bitter is even used in verse 31. So here's a huge contrast here. Don't be bitter towards other people in the way you talk. Don't be bitter. Be kind. Be sweet from the heart. What a great command. You know, when you've got a group of people that are routinely this way with one another, isn't it just pleasant, soothing, healing, therapeutic, a joy to be around people that are like that? They're not devouring each other like a bunch of... uh, What are those vicious fish? Uh, Piranhas? Rather than being kind to one another, that's the command here. It's a command. Be kind, Christian. And also Paul says to one another, the implication here, or not even the implication, but the direct command is he's talking as a corporate group, as a Christian body, as a local group of believers. You need to be kind to one another. It's reciprocal. It's a reciprocal relationship, right? We're kind to each other. And that's what helps the body of Christ grow in maturity, when we do things to one another. This phrase, one another, is repeated a couple of times in this passage, and it's kind of neat. If you go through Paul's epistles, he's got all these one another's that are commanded of the, the Christian church. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Be patient with one another. Be forgiving with one another. They're called the one another's. And it's talking about the fellowship of the body of Christ corporately so we can grow together in grace. So that's the first command. In our actions, let's be kind to one another. And that's particularly with our mouth, our words, and our actions. And even your words are actually actions. So monitor your mouth. Monitor your actions this week in light of this verse and seeing are you routinely being kind to others, even those you don't particularly care for that maybe you're mad at in obedience to Christ because that's what we're supposed to do. But he goes on and that's, uh, so continue to imitate the Father first in your actions by being kind and then Letter B there, I put in your attitudes. Be like God the Father towards sinners with a gracious attitude. In attitudes, uh, Paul goes on after saying in verse 32, be kind to one another and then tender-hearted towards one another. Again, this is a command. This is not an option. The new, uh, the new International Version or the NIV says, instead of tender-hearted, it says be compassionate with one another. Tender-hearted and compassionate, those are both legitimate translations of the word. The Greek word is splanknon, and it's always used in the plural in your New Testament, uh, and it was very graphic and picturesque. And you know what it referred to? It referred to the entrails or the inner guts of something, of a living being, like the heart and the lungs and the liver or the vital organs right here is what it literally originally referred to. 
Then it was used metaphorically in time, and now with spiritual connotations in Christian literature and in the New Testament. And what it was referring to was the gut. And what it was saying, in the gut in Paul's day, and in the Hebrew mindset, the gut was the seat of feeling or compassion. You know, sometimes how when you have an emotional reaction, uh, there's a response physically in your body, like whether you start sweating, or maybe your palms get hot and sweaty when you're nervous or something like that, or your mouth dries up when you get nervous. And also, when you are uh, emotionally distraught at times, your gut will get wrenched, won't it? And that's what he's talking about here. And so what he's saying literally is be kind to one another, be tender-hearted towards one another, or literally have compassion for one another. And the way Jesus uh, is mentioned a couple of times in the gospel, it says Jesus had compassion for the multitudes when he looked upon them and they didn't have a shepherd. They were on their own. They were being deceived by the Pharisees. They were without the truth if they didn't accept Christ. And he looked on the multitude who was lost without Christ, and it said his gut hurt for these people. That is compassion. When your gut hurts in pain for other people in light of their great need or in light of their great pain. And that's what we're called to do as Christians is to hurt in our gut for other people with compassion or being tender-hearted. This is talking about a, a spiritual sensitivity we have towards others as humanity. We have towards other human beings who are made in the image of God. We need to have compassion on people when we see things bad happening. So there is emotion involved here, but it's emotion that flows from a proper understanding of how we're to have concern for other people as opposed to being cold, callous, indifferent, hardened, dismissive. You know, that's easy to do in today's world, isn't it, when you've got so much heartache all over the world. It's plastered everywhere. It's on the news. It's on the Internet. It is everywhere in your face all the time. You almost become desensitized to being compassionate and heartbroken because you're hit with it constantly in little sound bites all the time. You're not even able to process one incident that you should be heartbroken for before they're on to the next one and then on to a McDonald's commercial as though it has anything to do with the compassion you need to have for something else. Trivializing, trivializing all these things that we should have compassion over. So that's good to be evaluating our own heart. God, you know, and praying. I'm asking God to evaluate you, your own heart with your Holy Spirit. God, am I a compassionate person for people who are in need and hurting? God, am I sensitive like Jesus was sensitive? Jesus was sensitive. Jesus, two times in Matthew, chapter 9 and another chapter later on, I think 14, it says that Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. He looked at Jerusalem and wept over the city. Compassion. His, his gut hurt for the multitude. This is the same fickle mob of the multitude that would cry, crucify him, crucify that put him on the cross. He knew that. Nevertheless, he still had compassion on these sinful people. That's the love of God. That needs to be our attitude. So we need to be like the father who looked on sinners and didn't say, oh, they're despicable. I'll just wipe them all out and start all over again. He looked on sinners and had compassion and was heartbroken for sinners. And that prompted him to action to do something about it, to send Christ the Savior to save sinners because of God's compassion. So we need to be like God the Father and be kind to each other by having compassion with one another. Uh, Let's go on. We need to be kind like the Father in another way, Paul says, in appreciation. This is kind of the motive or why we are to have compassion and kindness towards other people. Why we're supposed to have compassion and kindness, actually, towards other sinners. 
Why we're supposed to be kind and have compassion towards people we don't particularly like or that annoy us or that have offended us or have sinned against us or are harboring sin against us over a long period of time. Why in the world should I forgive them? Why in the world should I be... They don't deserve my kindness, a human might say in their sin. Well, that's why Paul says this. Well, you need to be kind and compassionate in appreciation. This is the motive. Here's the reason why. He goes on in verse 32 and he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you, Christian. That's why we're supposed to forgive and be compassionate and be gracious towards other sinners. It's because if you're a Christian, God did that for you first, right? We love and have the ability to love because God first loved us. He took the initiative. He took the action. He reached out. When we were lost, He saved us. We weren't worth saving, but He did anyway out of a heart of love, saved us, redeemed us, changed us, and gave us the capacity to do the same to other people. To be gracious to other sinners in appreciation for what God has done for us. A couple things I want to point out on this phrase. Uh, most of your translations say, by the way, in verse 32, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. But I just want you to know the, the literal Greek word is from the word charis, which means grace, and literally should be translated be gracious towards one another. Because there is a specific Greek word for forgive. Like when in Matthew 6, when Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, and he said, forgive each other of your sins, and he used the literal word for forgive, which is a fiemi in the Greek. This is a different word. This is just the generic word for grace. Be gracious to one another. That's good to know, because you know why? The word for grace, be gracious to one another, actually is a bigger umbrella of blessing than forgive. Forgive is very narrow, isn't it? but be, rather the command to be gracious to one another, that includes forgiveness and a whole bunch of other attributes and characteristics as well. So think about it. Be gracious to others the same way God in Christ was gracious to you. Well, how was God in Christ gracious to us as sinners? Well, first and foremost, He was forgiving, wasn't He? So we need to forgive others the same way God has forgiven us of our sins. But God went beyond that. It was, that's the negative part. He forgave you of your sins, but He did more than that. In His grace. He was gracious to you in that He forgave you. He was gracious to you, Christian, in that He adopted you into His family. Isn't that awesome? We weren't orphans, left to all our own. He adopted, that's positive regarding salvation. So He was gracious in forgiving us, in adopting us. God was gracious to you in giving you of His Spirit to live inside of you for the rest of your days on earth. That was very gracious. God was also gracious when He reached out to us by giving us an inheritance. That's a promise of the future when we get to heaven. Of all things that belong to Christ will belong to us. So God was gracious in what He did in our past, what He does in our present through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and what He's doing regarding our future, the inheritance. Graciously promising us a resurrection body. That is gracious. Graciously giving us the Word of God while we're here on earth so we can know what God wants from us. The Word of God is a gracious gift. So God gave us all these things that were gracious that we didn't deserve. So be gracious to others as God in Christ has been gracious to you, Christian. The gift of prayer. Isn't prayer a gift of grace? That's what the word charis means. That's where the word charissa comes from. A gift of grace. The emphasis there is on two things. It is gracious. In other words, you did not deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. That's the first emphasis. And the second thing is it's, the emphasis is on giving. It's an action. A gift of grace to bless another person even though they don't deserve that blessing. 
And God has given us all these things graciously. So in light of all these treasures that God has given us in Christ Jesus, in light of all this gracious, undeserved giving, Christian, can't you in return be gracious to your fellow man? Because after all, who has been offended more by sin? Has your neighbor and their sins against you been more offensive than our sins against a holy, infinite God? No. And as a Christian, all of my sins have been forgiven in Christ by a holy, eternal God. All of my sins. Can't I just forgive a few sins of my fellow brother? You know, I've done some marital counseling over the years. And uh, many times when you've got a married couple who they're, maybe they're not getting along or they're really having a hard time or maybe they're even considering separation or the big D word. Many times when it's that bad, at root, you will find a heart of unforgiveness or a lack of grace. And if they are Christians, and this is a Christian married couple, inevitably I will get to the forgiveness issue, being gracious with one another issue, and I will ask them, so, are you a Christian? Yes. So, how, how, much of, how many of your sins have been forgiven? Well, all of them. And, you're so, and why are you so mad at your spouse? Well, because they did this and this and this and this and this. Oh, okay. And it doesn't sound like you've forgiven them. Sometimes they'll admit, no, I haven't. I haven't forgiven them. I, I, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Whoa. Time out, and I will take them to this verse right here. God has forgiven you all of your sins, and yet you cannot forgive your own spouse of their sins. Who has sinned greater? Your spouse against you or you against a holy, eternal God. And that's the point here. There is no sin, in other words, that a Christian cannot forgive in light of all the sins that we have been forgiven against a holy God in Christ. We need to be gracious towards other people. We need to be gracious towards other sinners because that is what God has done in us in Christ. I just want to read this verse. You don't need to turn there because it's so familiar. It's from the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus said to his disciples, when you pray, this is the model of prayer. I want you to pray. This needs to be habitual model of prayer in your life. And one of the components in your prayer life continually needs to be this. Forgive us our debts, as you're talking to God. Forgive us our debts, Father, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then it goes on, verse 14. And Jesus said, For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men of their sins, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whoa. And if you don't get your sins forgiven, you go to hell. If your sins are not forgiven, you cannot go to heaven. What is Jesus saying here? Really what he's saying here is if you're really a believer, then God has transformed your heart and he's given you all forgiveness of sin and he's given you the Holy Spirit in your heart and he has given you the capacity to forgive any sin that anybody commits against you. Because you're a child of God. And so the pattern and the habit and your lifestyle will be, you will be a forgiving person. Because you have the supernatural capacity of God to forgive other people of their sins. So forgiveness, or being gracious in all manners, not just forgiveness, very important and is modeled after God himself. So that's how we imitate the Father, by being kind to each other. In action, in attitude, and appreciation. Let's go on to point number two. Paul goes on with not only imitate God the Father... And being kind, but let's imitate the Lord Jesus Christ himself in a very specific way as we deal with one another. And that's verses 1 and 2. And he says, therefore, be imitators of God. That's interesting, that phrase there. He's commanding us to imitate God. Well, okay, well, what does God do? God, what do you do so I can imitate you? Well, it's very specific here. It says, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ did. This is interesting because he's 
basically equating Christ with God. And Christ is God in the flesh. Very important. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So the the emphasis here is walking in love. Loving other people. Loving especially the brethren. Especially those in the local church and in your midst. Fellow saints. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you, Christian. How did he love you? He gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And let's just look at the three main ways that Christ loved us and the way he modeled love so we can mimic his love towards one another. Uh, The first one there, imitate Christ and love each other. And there's three aspects of what Christ's love was like. Letter A is with supernatural love. We need to love with supernatural love. That's letter A. Letter B is with selfless love because that's how Jesus loved. Supernatural love, selfless love. And then the third one, letter C, is with sacrificial love. That's how Jesus loved. That's how he did it. He modeled love for us. Let's highlight just a couple of those, or these three things. A Christian needs to love with supernatural love. I get that from the phrase, as beloved children. Paul is acknowledging here that he's talking to Christians. Christians are children of God, but notice the word there. He put beloved children from the verb agape, which can be used in reference to supernatural God-given love. And the specific word used here is agapeta, which is a very unique word word in the New Testament occurs about 61 times, and here's what's significant about it. That word agapeta, beloved, it's usually translated. It is always in reference to someone that God personally knows and loves. Usually it's in reference to Jesus Christ. So there's two nuances here. Uh, The history and the origin of it, of this word beloved, was in reference to an only child. An only child where the mom and dad just showered in a concentrated manner all of their love on this one child that they had to the point where that child was totally satisfied and content in their love and their relationship with their parents. And here's the picture. That's how God looks at us. God looks at us from heaven. He doesn't see us as one in a mass of humanity. Yeah, I know McManus is out there somewhere. I love him. Jesus died for him. No. It is specific kind of love. You are a one and only child of God if you know Christ. He knows you by name. He knows every hair on your head. He knows your destiny. He knows your sins. He knows your needs. He meets your needs. It's a very specific, intimate, personal love is this word, beloved. And this is not the kind of love that's in reference to the world, including sinners, because that's John 3.16, God so loved the world. That's a generic love of God by virtue of the fact that He created all people. This is a specific kind of love that God puts on those that He saves. You are a beloved child of God. In other words, if you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. This is a specific kind of love After you become a Christian, from God himself, you are like his only child, precious to him. Well, that's just to say, and once you become a Christian, God gives you a supernatural kind of love. So in this command, when we're commanded to love with a supernatural love, only Christians can love this way. Only Christians can love with a supernatural love. That's what 1 John 4 says. If you're a Christian, you have the capacity to love others. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the capacity to love the way Christ loved. As a matter of fact, that's one of the marks or the signs that maybe you're born again or not, that you need to evaluate yourself. Romans 5 uh, says that the love of God has been at salvation shed abroad in your hearts. The moment you become a Christian, God gives you supernatural ability to love. And it comes through the Holy Spirit. The moment you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. And Galatians 5 says you have the Holy Spirit who now will produce the love of God in your heart. So if you're a Christian, you have supernatural love at your disposal, and therefore you can pretty much love anybody. If you're not a Christian, you cannot meet the mandate that is required here of supernatural love towards your fellow man. 
So this is supernatural love, only at the disposal of those who personally know God. Let's go on to letter B, and that is we need to love a supernatural love, but also selfless selfless love, because this is how Jesus loved. Paul says, just as Christ gave himself up. Jesus loved, how did he do it? Well, he did it selflessly, right? That's the key. We need to love selflessly. What What does it mean to be selfless? Well, Paul said in Philippians 2, here's a good definition, considering others more important than yourself. It's a good definition of selfless. But there's a second part to the definition of selfless. Consider others more important than yourself. In other words, you're not always focused on your agenda. But I need to say this. Uh, Selfless does not mean the following. Because people could get confused by this. It does not mean that you're always doing everybody else's agenda. That's not necessarily being selfless if you're just doing what everybody else wants you to do. As a matter of fact, the Bible addresses that and says, if you're just doing what everybody else wants you to do all the time, then you fear man, which is not good. You're prone to manipulation by sinful people. Because what other people want isn't always God's agenda, is it? So being selfless is putting aside your own agenda. It's not necessarily doing what everybody else wants you to do. And third, the most important thing is being selfless is doing what God wants you to do. That's all. Very simple. Being selfless is being willing to do what God wants you to do no matter what, regardless of your agenda and regardless of anybody else's agenda who may have influence and sway in your life. It's the fear of God, not the fear of man. That's what it means to be selfless. That can make you quite unpopular. But Jesus was the master of this. He said in John several times, but in John 6, he said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. That is perfect selflessness. And Jesus set the example. Did you know that if you went through the Gospels and took a red pen and circled every time Jesus said no to somebody when they asked him to do something, you would be surprised at how many times Jesus said no. No, I'm not going to do that because it's not the will of the Father. No, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. No, I came to do one thing, not your agenda, not my agenda. So understanding this can actually help you actually say no to people. Some people have a hard time saying no. Did you realize that? They always have to say yes. They have to be a people pleaser all the time. That was not Jesus' model. You've got to be willing to say no to anybody except God the Father. Is this, if this is the will of God, absolutely, I will do it. And I will do it with all of my heart. You know, that's a relief. You don't have to feel guilty for saying no, especially if you know it is the will of God to say no. So we need to be selfless like Christ. Always, considered, uh, always preoccupied with the will of God. And then also we need to be sacrificial in our love because that's what Jesus did. And he, Paul goes on to say this. Jesus was sacrificial or I mean selfless, and he was sacrificial to the point how sacrificial was he. He was willing to die for sinners. He was willing to give up his own life for others. He gave himself up for us. That means he died for us. He died for us willingly. He wasn't a helpless victim. He gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. You know what that means? Not only did he just physically die for us, he willingly subjected himself to the outpouring of the infinite, eternal wrath of Almighty God for all the sins of the world. He was punished For sin, not just in a physical sense, in his very soul. That is the height of sacrificial love. Because Jesus was sinless, we were sinners, and we didn't deserve that. Yet he absorbed all the wrath of God on the cross on behalf of sinners. The epitome of sacrificial love. Jesus said it himself in John 15. There is no greater love than this that another person laid down his, by us, physical life for another person. So the height of sacrificial love is giving your own life. And that's what Jesus did for us. So if Jesus is willing to die for us, shouldn't we be willing to live for others in love? 
Well, that's what he's calling us to do. So we need to love like Christ. With the supernatural capacity, we have to do it selflessly, looking to God's agenda and not our own, and then finally, sacrificially, even if it cost me my life, or maybe just a little bit of inconvenience. So we need to be kind to each other. We need to love each other. And uh, just in conclusion, just um, I want to say I was last week flipping through the channels and happened to come across an interview with Donald Trump's daughter, who is now working for Donald Trump on The Apprentice TV show. And she was being interviewed by somebody, and um, she concluded by saying, talking about her dad, what's your dad like? And, well, one thing you need to know about my dad, that's Donald Trump, one of the richest men in the world, um, or most famous people in the world. She said, yeah, one thing, I'm like my dad. And what you need to know, probably one of the greatest characteristics about my dad that stands out about who he is as a person is that when somebody attacks him, he not only attacks him back, he attacks him back twice as hard. And the person who was interviewing her was kind of taken aback and, whoa, like, did you really say that? And this was like a person who was not even a Christian, as a matter of they're quite crude, and they followed up with, well, what about turning the other cheek? And she said, well, pff, I'm not like that, I wasn't trained like that, it's not a part of my worldview. And that's how I am. If somebody attacks you, you attack back, you attack twice as hard. And you take them down before they take you down. And this person who was interviewing him quoted Jesus. Well, what about turning the other cheek? Being kind, gracious, forgiving. I don't want any of that. It doesn't work. It's not successful. Can't let people railroad you and run you over. I was just thinking, wow, what a huge contrast to the words the Apostle Paul has for us as the Christian community today. What a distinct worldview, ethic, and lifestyle we have. And it's only because Christ made it possible. And right now, we're going to go to the Lord's table and thank Jesus Christ for his sacrificial, selfless death on our behalf so that we might have forgiveness of sin. And one of the ways we tangibly remember that and his sacrifice for us is the gift of the Lord's table that he's given us as Christians. But first, let me close in prayer uh, regarding these things we've been talking about. Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for the treasure of your word and how you speak to us in a practical way and embed these truths deeply in our hearts and in our minds to remember them, God, just to focus on two simple things. How can we better be kind to one another and more kind at home? And how can we love one another and be more loving at home and wherever we go and in the local church? And God, we know it's dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit and confessing our sin and trusting you. So I pray that that's a reality more and more in our church. We commit this time to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.